I have something from the far reaches of the galaxy. Surely you want... Oh, it's adorable. What is it? What is it? Why, lovely lady, it's a triple. Only the sweetest creature known to man. Except in, of course, your lovely self. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Star Trek Essentials. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. Hello, you Denebian slime devil, Matt. Hello, everyone. Here today to talk with you about the remastered edition of The Trouble with Tribbles. Matt, what is remastered? The remastered edition of Star Trek. Pete, if you can believe it, uh, in September, the remastered edition will be 10 years old. What uh, what was termed at the time CBS Paramount Domestic Television, now CBS Television Distribution, uh, what they did is they took first-generation original camera negatives of classic Trek, um, kept all the live-action footage, uh, but uh, had uh, commissioned a replacement for all external shots of ships, planets, etc., uh, occasionally there's a scrubbing up of uh, some live action effects. Indeed, something that we'll be talking about in this episode in a little bit. Uh, this was uh, done under the direction of Star Trek producer David Rossi, who consulted with the fabled, famous in Star Trek circles, Mike and Denise Akuda, who, by the way, in the first remastered episode, they give themselves a teensy tiny little uh, little uh, cameo as as people in a in a uh, far off space city, um, and basically, basically that's it. They 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 gave the series a little little scrub to the future uh, in terms of the effects. And initially, I remember saying, "Oh, there's nothing wrong with it. I can't believe they're doing this." But I think that it really has helped has helped this 50 year old television show uh, age very very gracefully. You and I both own the original versions in various uh physical incarnations but to have this and and we both watched it through netflix where they're available they were available first through syndication it it gives you a little uh you know little little change uh you, you certainly notice it i mean the the visuals on the originals can at sometimes be jarring for their you know seat of the pants uh you know creation i think there's a lot more charm to that than there isn't but uh yeah it's it's something to notice for a episode that first bowed on television screens december 29th 1967 the 44th overall in the original series and by the way, Pete, the uh, remastering was done at a 16 to 9 ratio. That's kind of your, your TV widescreen. Um, and the episodes still remain in the standard 4 by 3 ratio. That's your you know kind of square TV. Um, but it was done if ever the decision is to reformat the entire show. I imagine kind of looking forward to some sort of computer that can take a live action shot and somehow, you know, stretch it out without going to extreme computer means or whatever it might be. Point being, it's just nice to know that they kind of did this remastery with an eye towards the future of it's widescreen if we need it. And Pete, I swear I have seen episodes of Classic Trek on Netflix shortly after they debuted that the effects shots 
I was like, hold on, that's widescreen. And it kind of, it, it, you know, then we go back to 4.3 for on the bridge and then widescreen again. And then I went back a couple of days later and it wasn't there. So maybe I'm crazy about that. But again, just this this idea that the remastery was done, perhaps, Pete, for further remastery in the future. I just hope in the future, if they stretch those shots, that they can find a corset big enough for William Shatner. <laughs> By the way, Pete, speaking of the future, I know that there's been plenty of uh, chatter online, et cetera, et cetera, about how we are going to be doing uh, the Star Trek Discovery podcast, which uh, may be how you're listening to this episode. If not, you're listening to this on the pop culture podcast feed for Fantastic Geek. So certainly excited to be bringing uh, news about Star Trek Discovery as that comes out in the future. Pete, how can people ensure that Fantastic Geek is there for you in the future? Well, listen, you know, we might be the crew, but you are the engineers. You are the Federation. You keep us flying. You can go to patreon.com slash fantastic geek, all one word with the PH. And uh, we have a variety of uh, incentives for you to earn should you uh, choose. So certainly a great and an appreciated way to uh, to keep the lights on, keep the engines running uh, for old Fantastic Geek. And uh, Pete, I really like that uh, that engineer analogy. Well done. Pete, with that faster than you can say quadro triticale, let's get into the Trouble with Tribbles. Yes, nominated for a Hugo. All uh, Hugo nominees this year were, that year, were Star Trek. <laughs> wow. Uh, it, it did lose... Uh, to City on the Edge of Forever, though. Uh, our episode here begins with a briefing on Deep Space Station K-7, mention of the Klingons, who later in this episode are referred to Klingons, <laughs> and then there's apparently some language called Klingoni, uh, <laughs> which, which comes up. Um, we have Kirk, we have... Chekhov, we have Spock here, and uh, maybe most noticeably, Matt, at the beginning, we have Chekhov's Davy Jones haircut. Yeah, and it's interesting having come off of uh, Chekhov in Star Trek Beyond in in, in recent watch, and then um, to see him given more prominence in this episode than he normally gets uh obviously a little bit bittersweet with the passing of anton yelchin or at least bittersweet in 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 a reverse time sense or whatever but uh th- there he is pete he's hip it's the late 60s the kids it's the future it's the monkeys it's all together it's the russians it, it, it's a big bright beautiful tomorrow and what it must have meant to have seen a russian on your tv screen in late 1967 as an affable, if not uh, faulty uh, historian for uh, our future. Indeed, kind of a proud Russian. And of course, there's the interesting um, the interesting effect here uh, that, <laughs> you know, it's done at a time where U.S.-Soviet relations uh you know, obviously not at their best. Uh, similar situation when Star Trek The Next Generation gets off the board. Worf kind of is the proxy for maybe one day we and the Soviets, things will be okay. And 
here we are, Pete, 50 years or so later, and things are kind of okay. Obviously, you know, email hacking things notwithstanding, but it's with a little extra bit of pride, I think, that we as a human race can say, you know what, we figured that one out okay. This first act, the the tease, if you will, Matt, culminates with the discussion about Sherman's planet, named for uh, the woman who had a keychain that they based the triple design on. Um, and there's a distress call that, that comes in to take us to the title card. By the way, I thought that the planet was named for the young son of Mr. Peabody, who had envisioned a, a pine tree farm, uh, which didn't work out after the man from space, Marty McFly, came and ruined everything, and including killing one of the, the pine trees. But I digress. Back to Star Trek, Pete. Well, what do you know? They arrive at the station, full-on priority one distress call, and... There's nothing doing, Matt. But uh, station manager, Mr. Lurie, has asked them to beam down. And it's there that they meet bureaucrat Nils Varis, the Federation Undersecretary in charge of agricultural affairs in the Quadrant. So a couple of things going on here. First, certainly Kirk has dealt with other uh, boss man types in previous episodes, but to me, what makes this slightly different is it's the first it's the first kind of Federation guy to not be in some sort of chain of command like I am a Commodore, you are a captain, and we understand how you know which way the you know what uh, flows because it flows downhill. This is a guy who kind of is is um, uh, power checking, rank checking Kirk in terms of no, no, mighty captain of a starship. Uh, you actually need to do what I say, or, oh, you've given me a, a half an answer. Well, I'm going to go call your dad, the Admiral. I say dad in quotes. And, and then <laughs> the he's going to, the Admiral, and then he's going to call later and be like, you got to do this because it's really important. Um, there's kind of a sense here of beloved Kirk. He's come in from the, from the wild, and it's like, oh, I'm no longer captain of all that I can see because you're running an awful space station here. To well, me, he's not running it, but you understand my point. To me, whenever Kirk is wearing the green tunic that no one else ever wears, he is at his most Kirkian. And, and it's a visual cue that the alpha male is going to ooze out even more. And it's no surprise that he butts heads with Barris here. We get introduced to Barris's assistant, Arn Darvin, who is a is a thread that carries on uh into the spiritual sequel of uh trials and tribulations with deep space nine um but the bureaucrat here wants guards posted around all the storage compartments containing this quadro triticale uh, grain that yeah you guys wouldn't know anything about and spock shuts him down explaining what it is um they're worried a Klingon agent is is going to try to sabotage everything, Matt. There are a number of remarkable things going on in this scene. All of them kind of rather uh, rather light in their presentation. Uh, first of all, to bring it back to the remastered edition for a moment, uh, this is one of the rare scenes where where 
something has changed. And there's a great shot just in the background of the office out the window. You can see the Enterprise floating on by. Just a nice small introduction or, or, or uh, change rather. Um, second, it occurred to me time and time again while watching this episode that when you pull away the nostalgia of it, there still is, I mean, obviously there's a functioning story, but even when you pull away the nostalgia, this is a story that somehow zips along, despite the fact that there's not a, there's a hidden Romulan ship, and it's uh, like a submarine, and and they're going to get us unless we get them, and who's going to, there's no ticking time bomb in this episode, it's just kind of like, all right, Kirk, you guys got to protect a thing, uh, we're kind of concerned about guys that aren't here, the Klingons, the the, the double agent uh, Arn Darvin notwithstanding. And there's just kind of this slow rollout, but still somehow this very well-written episode, well-written by David Gerald, there's this pithiness to it. There's a relaxed nature to it, but it still moves. You mentioned David Gerald. This was his first Hollywood sale. And I mean, what a, what a legacy that your first thing you ever sold is the trouble with tribbles is, an instantly identifiable throughout a 50 year history to this date, uh, canon. Um, you know, we, we moved to the bar, we get this first appearance of Cyrano Jones, which was criticized at the time that the episode aired still may not hold up the best of anything in this episode. <clears throat> and they talk about the, uh, Quadro Triticale, uh, which of course check off everything is, is retconned here as a, a washing in Wenshin, which is even something that crops up in, uh, the new movie, Star Trek beyond. In, in, indeed, I couldn't remember in Star Trek beyond where that reference was, was from the idea, uh, that'll be mentioned in a little bit that, uh, that scotch is a Russian invention. The fact that it goes back to this beloved episode, it, it, it's all the more wonderful. And it's showing a pride in Russia, uh, obviously not the Soviet Union, which worked out well long term. But it's kind of a pride in Russia, a pride in self. It's done winkingly to the audience. I don't even know if Chekhov believes all these things are actually <laughs> Russian inventions. But he is proud of who he is and from where he comes. And you're saying... What effect does that have on everyone else? They go, eh, let's go out for a drink. That in and of itself, it's not terribly dramatic. In fact, the whole time, Chekhov, sit down. We're not going to fight. We're not going to, you know, hold back, young man. Everybody's, everybody can be proud of where they come from and still work for this common cause. Wow, if that's not, if that's not something that we still need to hear and still need underlined and still need to be reminded about. But uh, Cyrano Jones here, he's the he brings the slapstick, the the the, the lowbrow humor, if you will, to this episode that that is needed and unable to interest the uh, the bartender in more junk. He whips out a triple and Uhura is captivated. This cute, fuzzy little thing. Not quite sure if it's supposed to be a dog, a cat durable whatever but have since become ubiquitous to the franchise no teeth gets the grain and uh you know away we go on that plot thread again introduced in a very kind of passive way it is both fun but not kind of like look this is where the trouble with the tribbles will come from it's 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 
presented uh, all of it, this, this sale by Cyrano Jones, played by Stanley Adams. Yeah, he's probably a little over the top here. But, but it works in an episode where everybody who sees Cyrano Jones knows he's a character, knows he's going to sell them something where there's probably a, a, a downside to it. Um, and by the way, Pete, to get really kind of nitty-gritty Star Trek here, as Jones and the bartender are discussing the sale, they're, they're talking about credits, Pete. This is at a point where the Federation in the original series was presented as kind of vaguely moneyless. This is something that, that is spelled out a bit more clear in uh, Star Trek Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. Nice little, uh, I don't want to say, it's not retcon, but it works better looking back to see that Uhura is still able to get the Tribble because the sample one sold to the bartender is taken back by Cyrano Jones to give to Uhura on the house. So this whole idea of maybe one day we can exist in happiness without money, <laughs> at least here it pays off. There's not like, oh, this is the glaring thing where she takes out her, you know, her, her, her money stick and there's a transaction. No, it's without money. You got to wonder how much uh, Harry Mudd is in Cyrano Jones. Um, you know, Mudd, one of the rare characters to appear more than once in uh, the original series and, and then showing up in the animated series. But uh, we, we put the tribbles in play. Then we've got to get Admiral Fitzpatrick or the Dadmiral there. All right, this grain's important. Wait, Klingon Battlecruiser, red alert. But they get the video there from uh, Mr. Lurie's office. Hey, I've got the Klingon commander here. Why don't you just beam down and maybe the most anticlimactic act break of all time. Cancel red alert. Here's Tide. <laughs> Uh, by the way, Pete, this is one of a zillion examples in Star Trek where their visual communication uh, devices, uh, you know, their, their FaceTime, their Skype cameras, whatever it is, whatever it's become in the future, where those cameras have a sense of dramatic reveal <laughs> because it's the close-up of Mr. Lurie and then it's like, what? Klingons? Dolly back. Wide shot. Reveal that there are bum, bum, bum. Klingons here hanging in the office. Well, they um, talk to the to the hollow camera operator before they communicate him like, all right, you're going to want to set up here and then pull back once I tell him that he's here, you know, because viewers. <laughs> the, 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 the hollow camera operator has an assistant with lots of um, different colored masking tape. Okay, you're going to start on blue, go back to red, do the reveal. It's all it's all wonderful. And then, Pete, we get the Klingons. Always kind of the force of, of underrepresentation in the original series. Want to do all sorts of prosthetic masks but don't have the money? Eh, maybe do Romulans with helmets. Eh, but you still have to have a couple guys in ears. You know what? What about beard hair and matching outfits? Yes, we can do Klingons. And of course, Pete, they don't have the spaceship luxuries like Earthers. <laughs> Captain Koloth here, uh, a, a name that echoes throughout the franchise, played by the same actor who played Trelane in the Squire of Gothos episode from season one, of course, assures Kirk that their intentions are peaceful. 
uh, these Klingons, Matt, as they are referred to in this scene and in nowhere else. <laughs> I got to wonder if this was the first one out of the typewriter. They need sure leave, too. They've been in space for five months. And they don't have non-essentials, Matt, which, uh, hang on, 1967 housewives are women? <laughs> I didn't quite catch that as the suggestion being made that the lack said of non-essentials and made the outline of the feminine form matt i'll have to go back and check that out wow yeah um well you know what pete i think that the the imperial fleet as seen in the future uh with 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 ladies on ships that certainly is uh that's why the klingons are are, are doing better well, uh, it's a continuity error because in the very first Klingon episode, there's a Klingon woman. Well, this is a great time to uh, to be reminded of something that I only heard in the last couple of years, and it was like this light bulb that went off. Though Star Trek is episodic TV, the the baked in thought from word go was actually more of an anthology with the same characters each week. Not that it's going fully in that direction, but whenever there are these resets of like, oh man, Kirk needs to, he has to whisper when they, when the Romulans are cloaked because it's a submarine. Like <laughs> what's the answer to that when in future episodes, he doesn't have to whisper. Eh, we're doing all sorts of different things. Sometimes it's like Nazi uniforms and alternate earth. And other times it's, your part of your face is black and part of it is white and it's kind of an a little bit more of an anything goes attitude a from the time b from the kind of lack of well, who's going to care about this in five years but most of all it's kind of there's nobody there saying wait a minute we need to have consistent uh, uh verbiage for what the klingons call the people from from earth including the vulcan and the other aliens on the ship but the uh, the terms, Matt, of the uh, Organian, I don't know if that was negotiated by Bail Organa, peace treaty, say that uh, they can't refuse the shore leave. So the solution out of this scene is that no more than a dozen Klingons at a time will be allowed on the station and there'll be one red shirt per Klingon. And again, a reminder here, what's the threat in the episode? Thus far, there really isn't one, and, and that's a credit to the writing, that you're not sitting here going, oh, they're trapped in the ship and all the lights are off because we need to save money. The, the, you kind of can't see the fingerprints here that we have tribbles that are going to cause trouble, and so far the biggest trouble is uh, one got sold and given away, and then also there's some you know, uh, proxy for Russians, the Klingons who are, you know, just terribly kind of foul and yucky. Uh, they want to go to the bar. Okay. Like there's nothing propelling this episode of, other than where it's headed. It's kind of under its own power, but you don't miss it. And then the trouble starts with our first appearance of Dr. McCoy. Uhura's Tribble has made Tribbles. Spock notes the tranquilizing, trilling effect, which, of course, he's immune to. And McCoy takes one to sickbay to analyze, and Uhura is giving them away. This, uh, this 
is a great example of why Leonard Nimoy, I believe, was nominated for Emmys all three years that, that Classic Trek was on. The way in which he's breaking down the trilling effect soothes people, which, of course, has has no effect on on him. It's The comedy of it is broad and clear, but he plays it straight, and it's just wonderful. And then everybody has a laugh with him, not a laugh at his expense. It's camaraderie, it's light, it's easy. You're still reminded of who he is in terms of his, his emotional state and all of that. Um, and then as you say, Pete, to the maternity ward. Well, prior to heading to sick bay, uh, Barris phones Kirk and tells him there are swarms of Klingons, Matt, even though we know there's no more than a dozen on uh, Space Station K7, which sends Kirk to sick bay in search of space Tylenol. Uh, indeed, he's got a headache from all this trouble from Mr. Barris and the Klingons, um, which... Again, you can see the fingerprints of the writer there. He's going to the next thing. But mirac- I don't want to say miraculously. It's a well-written episode, not because it is it because you can see the writer's fingerprints. It's well-written because you you need to go looking for them to find them. Anyhow, he's there. Um and uh the the dialogue here sizzles about fat tribbles leading to more tribbles, how McCoy should open. Pause for punchline. That maternity ward. Um, we also have some some setup that doesn't feel like setup. Uh, there's the little gag of Scotty enjoying reading his technical journals for fun. This, of course, is going to lead to his kind of soft booting onto shore leave on K7, which itself will lead to some drama in a little bit. And the necessary exposition that 50% of the Tribble's metabolism is geared for reproduction further laying the story tracks that they're going to get out of control. But uh, with Scotty reluctant to be sent to the station, we get really what in essence we're going to talk essential Trek is an all-time scene in the bar here. It's, it's absolutely fantastic, and he's there to relax. He's there to enjoy his drink. Um, and the whole time there's the fake out of, of Chekhov being goaded into hearing all these insults about Kirk, his captain and no, 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 sit down, lad. No, 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 sit down. Let it go. Be the bigger man, be the bigger man. It's, you know, he, he's not going to fall into the trap that the Klingons lay. And then Pete, they start insulting Scotty's lady, the enterprise herself. Yeah. This swarthy Klingon first officer who first pours Cyrano Jones a drink out of his glass which didn't sit quite right with me <laughs> um, says that earthers remind him of regulin bloodworms uh, the Russian in the scene calls this Klingon a Cossack which is interesting in that Cossacks are Russian so he's essentially picking out the worst of his nationality and labeling the Klingon that these Russian cowboys, but then having moved on to uh, insult the enterprise that really gets under Scotty's skin here, that that's why most of these systems are learning to speak Klingon. <laughs> As one does. 
the the fight that then that then unfolds it's just a a good old-fashioned rip-roaring tv fight uh you have the camera apparently on on the shoulder at various points so it's a little sloppy looking it's got you know it's got some great scenes of the real actors being thrown over a table or, or this or that plenty of stunt work indeed pete did you know that the actor playing the third drinking partner with uh with uh, uh, Scotty and and uh, Chekhov, who in um, the Deep Space Nine episode is mistaken as Kirk, that is William Shatner's Star Trek stunt double. I was unaware of that. I did see a double hand fist punch, though, so I knew there had to be some connection. <laughs> but you know, w- with with the bodies flying, of course, the bartender leaves, and Cyrano Jones helps himself. He walks through the fight, glass held high. The bartender returns and takes that glass. No free drink. And then, just as strangely as. Cyrano Jones was gifted a drink by the first officer of the Klingon ship poured right into his glass. Uh, He produces one from his pocket, an untopped glass and drinks out of that as we head into the act break was was a curious stage action. You know what? If you're going to do broad comedy, do broad comedy. And it's all centered in this guy. Uh, in a way where it feels like it's not spilling off into the other characters who are, who are, are seeing greater, uh, you know, greater drama around them or who are normally not funny characters. Uh, to me, it works. He's just a, just a tremendously funny character. For Act 3, we begin with a captain's log here, noting the disturbance shore leave has been canceled, and we get the famous lineup shot here. It wasn't Raymond who threw the first punch. Of course, Chekhov doesn't know who did it. They're all confined to quarters. And, hey, Scotty, I sent you down to keep order. What the heck happened? <laughs> I, of course, couldn't watch this without saying, wait, where's Chief O'Brien? Oh, that's like when the later time loop, when it loops back. And um, it, it it just speaks to how well this episode speaks uh, to its, uh, its 30th anniversary counterpart. So Scotty admits it was a matter of pride, but it wasn't over his captain. It was over the starship that caused him to uh, to react to the Klingon and throw that first punch. He, like everyone else, is restricted to quarters, but for him, great. Now I can read those technical manuals. <laughs> Which, an interesting loop there. I, I suppose there's a there's a slight leadership lesson. Here Kirk is trying to trying to push him out the door to get some uh, some Kirky in R&R, and, uh, and what does that get him? It gets him a fight and gets him sent back to doing what he wanted to do anyway. The Tribbles are now overrunning sickbay. Spock, of course, sees no practical use, but uh, McCoy likes them, of course, more than Spock. Uh, and the, the banter between um, DeForest Kelly and Leonard Nimoy is as good as ever. And I don't know what it is, Matt. You've seen them on screen a million times and you just want more of these two characters. I think that's what makes the latest movie in Star Trek Beyond, that we've gotten so much of them together finally to this point. Um, but they never overdo it. It's 
it's so smart to have this this trio of lead characters despite kirk being the 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 square jawed kind of cowboy character that that was so prevalent on television then and in, in large part remains uh kind of your go-to character to have these three characters though exist almost in a triangle where you can go off you know kirk as the as the Oh, you kids getting into a fight and still have the two other characters who can who can interact separate from him. It's how it should be done. I mean, I'm kind of thinking of uh, say the later Star Trek Voyager episodes where, uh, for a variety of reasons, probably his his attitude being at or near the top of the list, how you have uh, you have Robert Beltran's Chakotay, oftentimes relegated to like we're getting reports from all over the ship. There's damage everywhere, and like. That's his contribution. It's thing. It's lines like that. It's not rapport. His character doesn't always have a rapport with the other characters, probably because people didn't have a rapport with him. But I digress. <laughs> Build your show with these characters who can interact in different ways. Back on the bridge, the Tribbles are taking over. They're all over the monitors. They are in the chair. They're all across the the front console here. McCoy comes back with some more exposition that as far as he can tell, they're born pregnant, they're bisexual, they can reproduce at will. And uh, Spock points out they're consuming all of their supplies, but Uhura here, and I have to wonder, uh, not because of her race, but her gender, is she stereotyped in this episode in that she falls for the cute little thing, although the guys do as well, but she's the one that has to point out, the writer needs to point out through her. But wait, Spock, they give us love. It's a, That's a really good observation. And for, for all that Star Trek did to empower by, by virtue of its casting and by virtue of, of uh, a... a for the time, colorblind and genderblind take on things, it still ha- is stuck in its time where, of course, the captain is a white guy, etc., etc. We're, we're being very edgy having the alien played by 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 somebody who's who's Jewish. I know Shatner is as well, but I digress. Um, I, I think you've probably called this one on the nose, Pete, that the woman is the one that has woman feelings to be able to tell that these things are cute because they make us feel um i i had wondered in fact pete if you were going to go in the direction um like she's the she's the eve that brings the apple aboard the ship i I think that's Uh, probably that's a a decent point as well but i i I think the idea of the, the the feminine connection to a furry little animal um and then equating that with love as opposed to husbandry, if you will, that, you know, if these things had some practical use, if they were goats or something like that, and indeed there was talk, all right, we've got tribbles on the page. What's a tribble look like? They, they talked about goats and, and, and doing them in different colors and things that they had done before on the series and, you know, for uh, this woman to have the keychain and like, well, we'll just make. 500 of those and, and, and have it done. Um, the idea that they give love and then it's mentioned so cavalierly in the next couple scenes that several of them are dead and it's kind of like, all right, they're dead. They're little more than goldfish. Uh, 
is an interesting juxtaposition. Well, this is this is the rare case where where uh, in terms of creature design, you get to have your quadro and eat it too. They're so cute and can be made for you know. I mean, just just get a whole bunch of like monster fur, or, you know, wh- wh- whatever you wherever you get material like that in Hollywood. Get a whole bunch, stick cotton in there, stick a couple of uh, you know walking dog uh, wind up squeakies, and, yeah. Exactly. And have them move around, et cetera, et cetera. You then also get to kill a whole bunch later on. And do we see, you know, our beloved childhood pet mirrored in because it looks like a goat and the goat looks like the cat I had or the dog I had or the or whatever? No, because they're formless, they get to be cute when they need to be cute. And when they're dead, they kind of go back to what they looked like when they weren't moving. Um so it doesn't freak you out as <laughs> as an adult or a child to to see these things dead because now they're just kind of not moving. We kind of hit a little bit of a wall in the middle of the story here. Cyrano Jones is detained and then released. Barris is upset. He thinks that Cyrano Jones, of course, has to be the, the Klingon agent. And his assistant, Mr. Darwin, has, of course, had Cyrano Jones under surveillance. But it's, again, Spock who's got to bring the logic here. Wait, this guy, he's an asteroid locator and prospector. He, he makes a side uh, business by selling strange things. And then the triple drama ramps up even more. They're all over the rec room. Indeed, Matt, they even become Kirk's chicken sandwich and coffee. Yeah, we won't uh, we won't nerd out too much as to whether this is a, a food synthesizer or more kind of stuff sent up from the galley or whatever. Uh, again, we get to operate in the the returning cast for an anthology kind of uh, DNA of the show where I don't know it just gets to play as what it is. This is my chicken sandwich and coffee, and and there they are all over the tray in the cup, and uh, also at a point where. The humor is starting to pick up here, um, and it's done so wisely because our 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 unfunny straight characters are uh, they're not in on the joke. This is this is a mild annoyance. That you now can't have lunch. It's gone from there's a thing on my seat to there's a the, 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 waiter. There's a there's a triple in my coffee and his sandwich. And uh, but wait, oh, the same machinery through the air vents it's in the station too it's got to be in the storage compartments matt oh man it's all starting to it's all starting to come together um there's also this is also a point where where uh barris is wondering if jones is uh, is the klingon agent which had been planted earlier in the episode so all of a sudden again an episode that doesn't lack for pace the the dramatic thrust of it the 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 conflict of it all of a sudden really starts to ramp up here the the triples are making their way over somebody's certainly out to cause trouble it must be uh cyrano jones here and uh and we're we're off to the races here the final act begins after they've opened the compartment kirk in that classic uh, shot there buried by 500 tribbles that they they had to film you know five or six times uh they've gorged on grain there's one million seven hundred seventy one thousand five hundred sixty one of them by spocks you know imperfect math <laughs> um 
And McCoy explains, well, here's how we fix it. We'll quit feeding them. But wait, some of them are dead. Some of them are alive. What's going to happen? Barris is threatening a board of inquiry. It, it's all coming to a head. And this is where in, in good old fashioned TV, TV style here, we're going to have everybody get into Lurie's office so that we can, we can hash this out. Um, and uh, the, 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 the thrust of it is mentioned again that, that the Klingons have an eye towards Sherman's planet. That might be their foothold into, uh, into this part of space. And uh, then, Pete, it's time for the, the Tribbles to be taken from the room. Gee whiz, I'm sure lucky that uh, earlier in the bar, prior to the bar fight, it was revealed that, uh, that they, they squeak in that high uh, dolphin-esque voice uh, when they're around Klingons. They don't like Klingons. The Tribbles don't. And uh, Klingons don't like them. So take them out. Yeah, and wouldn't you know it, Jim, this man, Darwin, is a Klingon. The grain had been poisoned with a virus that blah 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 and uh, Kirk figures a way here through, and he gives uh, Koloth six hours to get out of Federation territory. Pete, uh, of course, everybody has to has to pay their pound of flesh or perhaps their pound of quadro triticale. Uh, Cyrano Jones is given the, uh, given the punishment of simply cleaning up all the tribbles. Uh, this is a, uh, a job that will take approximately 17.9 years by Spock's imperfect math. Uh, by the way, a nice little, uh, detail picked up in the animated series episode where, uh, you're supposed to still be cleaning things up there. What's up with that? And that? That's a story for another day, Pete. But uh, he's going to, uh, well, he's going to clean them up because it's either that or, or go to the Space Slammer and uh, exit Cyrano Jones to, to start the next 18 years of triple cleaning. Finally on the bridge here, we get word that a freighter has been diverted to Sherman's planet to get its Quadro Triticale on time. Uh, but Matt, where are the Tribbles rather ominously uh, referred to in this scene? Uh, it is revealed that Scotty sent them all to the Klingon ship right before they went to warp. I'm sure that that was a really, I mean, it's played for comedy here. If you even just start to think about it, you realize that it'd probably be pretty horrific for, for both the Klingons and the, and the Tribbles. But Pete, at least they're gone. No Tribble at all. Yuckety yuck yuck yuck. Pete, with that, the episode is over. Here is the question for you. In this lighter episode, it's not talking about uh, the rise of fascism. It's not talking about uh, our, 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 our worst devils of racism. It's not talking about will we destroy ourselves in the, the nuclear wars ahead. What is it that makes this an essential episode? Well, it's the cuteness of the Tribbles crossed with the slapstick of the bar fight when you boil it down that makes this episode a classic um, for them to return to it 30 years later and to reinsert new characters and action into pre-existing classic scenes between the bar fight, the fallout from the bar fight, later on the uh, the Tribbles dumping out of 
the uh, the storage compartments. You can have Kirk be Kirk, but at the same time soften him with the cutiness of the Tribbles, and everybody wins. I've heard this episode referred to as the episode you show to someone who hasn't seen Star Trek before. Uh, in that it's it, it's all there, you know, all the conflicts and all the all the nature of the universe and the hierarchy on the ship and the bad guys and the Klingons and all this, uh, but that it's 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 digestible, it's easy, and, um, and and I think that that is true too. I wonder how many people have been introduced to Star Trek by this episode, and and kind of had an interest in the series interest in in it all uh based on this episode this is the ewoks of the original series <laughs> well said indeed pete one more quick thing i want to mention uh while star trek beyond makes reference to uh scotch whiskey being a russian invention we of course get the reference in this episode a little old lady uh, lady from leningrad um you can nerd out and wonder, well, what Leningrad is there in the future? Since, of course, it was changed back to its original name, St. Petersburg. After that, you know, the USSR went away and all that. But a nice little, a nice little uh, stamp from its original time. And again, a reminder of what the Chekhov character is beyond a hip young guy who looks like the monkeys. It's also this idea that we really, we really can come together and maybe we can get through get through this human experience without uh, without messing up profoundly. That you can communicate the same message 50 years apart and it works in both eras stands as testament to this franchise's staying power. Well, Pete, we are going to be continuing our uh, August slate of uh, essential Star Trek episodes. Uh, the The list is not yet finalized, though we are though we are too deep in. So, Pete, let's start with some contact info here. First of all, how can people get in touch with you if they have a, a burning suggestion of essential Star Trek? You can find me on Twitter at Peter P I E T E R J K L A R. K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 8,157 followers. Can't be wrong. While I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast in a whole variety of ways. We are Fantastic Geek. That is fantastic with the P and the H. You can find us under that name on the .com, the Gmail, the Twitter, the Instagram. But wait, Pete, there's more! Facebook.com forward slash Fantastic Geek with a PH, all one word like it. And let us know which remaining episodes you'd like to hear as we close Star Trek Essentials up, at least for uh, the summer, and start uh, moving towards Star Trek Discovery at warp speed. Indeed, and if there's any, uh, if there's any breaking news on Star Trek Discovery, we'll, of course, uh, update uh, the Star Trek Discovery feed, if that's where you're listening to this. And, uh, of course, the Pop Culture Podcast by Fantastic Geek feed. Uh, we'll get all of that as well. So, with that, Pete, I'm going to uh, I'm, I'm go look more into this uh, Russian invention of Scotch whiskey, and uh, I'll give you the final word. First, find me Cyrano Jones, and second, close that door. <laughs>